This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey guys, it's Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend and the co-host of the Real Blend podcast, here to introduce you guys to another bonus episode of the Real Blend show. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by director Sam Esmel to talk about his new Netflix film, Leave the World Behind, which has an incredible cast, Julia Roberts, uh, Ethan Hawke, Mahershala Ali, uh, Kevin Bacon is in this one. And um, it looks like going into this movie, the less you know about it, the better. Um it's a couple who goes uh, or a family that moves out to one of these homes that they rent for the weekend. And then the initial couple who owns the house comes back. And in the midst of them uh, dealing with that confusion, there is a cyber attack that essentially paralyzes our country. And we go from there. Um, Sam worked on Mr. Robot, obviously, uh, is the creative voice behind that. So you can kind of understand where his interests lie. And he's been um, a guest that we wanted to get onto the show for a little while. Kevin's a huge fan of his. So I was really happy that during the junket for it recently, Jake and Kevin got a chance to sit down with him to talk about his new film. Um, and so without further ado, I'm going to throw it right to Sam Esmel, where he'll be able to talk about his new film, Leave the World Behind, on a bonus episode of the Real Blend podcast. First of all, thank you for joining us. It's great to see you again. Um, I'm just going to start here. off with this because I feel like this movie really is a love letter to physical media. Um, <laughs> the vinyl sequence when, when Julia's dancing with Mahershala is beautiful. Uh, obviously, the ending has a, a physical media aspect to it as well. And I just feel like, you know, for me, I have like 1,700 Blu-rays at home. That's how I watch my, wow. my movies as well. But making a film with Netflix, obviously, they started off as a DVD company. Right. Now they're obviously very highly into the streaming, but also theatrical. Right. Um, what what did it mean for you to put that in there, making a movie for Netflix? Well, it's strange because, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, obviously I'm a proponent of physical media, uh, you know, as are you. And I think it's really important. I mean, I think, what was that tweet that Guillermo del Toro? About Nolan. Yeah. yeah. And no, about how, you know, physical me owning physical media is going to, you know, save our culture, save our movie culture. So I'm a big proponent of that. At the same time, I grew up pre-Netflix, pre-internet. And I read about all these great movies I wanted to see, and I 
couldn't have access to them, you know? And so that's like the plus side of streaming services like Netflix is that you really have access to any movie from across history at, the, at your fingertips. So there's a, there's always a conflict because I'm a proponent of, of theatrical. I'm a proponent of of DVDs and Blu-rays, but I'm also, hey, I'm not mad at a streaming service that lets me see all the classics, you know, at a, at a moment's notice. Just a quick follow-up, because the, the not to, well, I guess the, the, by the time people see this, the movie's been out in theaters, but it'll also be on streaming. Yeah. The la- the shot of going uh, over the Netflix going button. Going over the Netflix. Was I mean, that- look, at, yeah, I mean, that was all intentional. Um, I mean, look, if, if that's going to happen. <laughs> so, do you get any pushback on that at all? No, no. It's look, brilliant. Yeah, no, uh, Netflix, Netflix is going, you guys, you couldn't have gone over any other app. <laughs> you couldn't have gone over Hulu or Amazon. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the word producer means so many different things. Sure. You know, it could mean, you know, I threw money at the project. It could mean I'm famous and just want to put my name on it. Or it could mean I'm going to be on set and I want to be actively involved. When your producers are Barack and Michelle Obama, <laughs> do you have access to just like if you have a legit question? Because honestly, when it comes to right. how to handle this sort of situation, a president would be a great source. Like, do yeah. you have the ability to pick up the phone and say, listen, I do have legit questions to ask you about this movie? Look, I can't text him in the middle of the night if that's what you're asking. <laughs> but um, Just because he's sleeping. <laughs> Um, but here's the thing. Uh, he's a huge movie lover. Huge. And um, and I didn't quite know how how in-depth his movie knowledge was until I started talking to him. Um, and he's a huge fan of the book, and he really was committed to making this into a great movie. And um, he was, you know, he was giving me notes at the script stage, multiple drafts, including, you know, post, rough cuts. Um, wow. He was really involved. And, uh, and you know, look, it's kind of a surreal, like... I mean, because I do think he is one of the most brilliant minds on the planet. And to get his insight on this, and it wasn't just, you know, the disaster element stuff. It was the characters. It was theme. um, It it was a highlight of my career. What was the coolest geek out session you had with him? Not about this movie, but just as two movie fans talking about film. I mean, I think, you know, there were moments where obviously we just would, you know, talk about our shows, our favorite movies, or et cetera. And, and, and just to hear him talk about his love for films and the fact that it's kind of a deep roster. It's not just like the, the blockbusters that yeah. came out this year. Yeah. I mean, he was His go, lists are always Did he pretty watch pretty Mr. Robot? He did. No! In fact, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so the way I found out was we were in the middle of the second season, and, uh, and it hadn't aired yet, and we were cutting the episodes. And uh, he was president at the time, and he... Uh, He's, you know, someone from the White House contacted our office and said he'd love to get rough cuts of the episodes before <laughs> Could they you aired. imagine, like, in the <laughs> Oval <laughs> Office? He's, he's got his feet up on the desk. He's, he's a huge Rami Malek yeah. fan. <laughs> it was insane, yeah. The, the, the red phone's ringing, and he goes, it can wait. i got to watch one more. You know, one of the things that we talked about uh, when you came to D.C. Uh, was, was about your camera work. Um, the camera in this yeah. film is a very much a leading character. Um, yeah. it's, it, it, and there's fourth wall breaks. There's movement like Children of Men. We talked all about that. Um, but I, I really find character placement in the frame to be a fascinating thing you play with here. There's a shot specifically when Mahershala is standing with his daughter and they're talking. And in the frame, they're at the bottom of the frame with a ton of headspace around them. This is after they drive uh, the family drives away. And then later on in the film, you'll have Julia Roberts in the right of the frame and then Mahershala on the left. And then you'll put her in the middle and then back and forth. 
the placement of characters and framing, like, can you talk about the narrative choices around that? I thought that Mahershala shot was so fascinating. There was so much headroom, and it was almost like we were looking at the world, but they right. were down here. Exactly. I mean, I mean, the way you're just describing it is that was all by design, right? Is that it, it, they're starting to feel small in this world that's kind of going chaotic around them, and and I think composition can do a lot. I mean, that that shot in particular doesn't move at all for the entire scene. It is static, and there's there's a family getting into a car and driving off, and then um, and then there's the, uh, you know this father and daughter are having this moment po- po- uh, after the after the other family leaves. So there's a lot of blocking and 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 things going on, but the frame stays static, and I think that just speaks to the power of composition. And I, I you know for me, it's not just about music and moving the camera and put, put cutting to a close up or anything like that. It could just be as simple as placement that tells you everything you need to know about how these characters are feeling in the moment. Also, there's an unnerving nature to the way you zoom in this film. Yeah. And I think I think Kubrick used to do that a sure. lot, obviously, and, yeah. and The Shining is probably a great example of that. But there's something unnerving about a slow zoom. Absolutely. And, and you only use it at very particular times because, and it's almost like a curiosity. I feel like I'm like going like this. I'm like leaning in with it. Right. When you do something like that paired with the unnerving music you're dealing with, can you talk about like the comp- like, like those comparisons, like, like, yeah. those, like what you want to get across? Well, because you brought up Kubrick, I'll say that the I remember when I first saw Clockwork Orange, oh. if you remember the opening shot, which is, to me, one of my favorite openings of any movie. It's just a slow zoom in uh, on our main character, and he's got, like, the, you know, the stare, the, the Kubrick stare. And, um, and I remember when I first saw it, and this was, like, I was, like, maybe... 14, and I was watching it with my friends. We were doing like, I'd never seen a Kubrick film, so they were, you know, my friend was That was your first? Wow. Yeah, Kubrick Film Festival. And and he, we were, we just watched all his movies, or like six of his movies overnight. Like we stayed up all night and watched them. And Clockwork Orange, then that shot happened. I remember physically, like you said, leaning in and reacting. And I thought, wow, okay, if a shot can do that, yeah. if a shot can physically get you to react to a, uh, you know, a moment, that that was really powerful to me. And if you've ever seen, um, did you ever see Visions of Light, the documentary no. about cinematography? No. Oh, it's a it's a great documentary. Oh my god, it's amazing. And and they talk about this shot in um, uh, Rosemary's Baby. Then have you you've obviously oh, yeah. seen the film? And there's a shot where the camera is kind of coming around the corner of a uh, you know into a bedroom and Ruth Gordon's sitting on the bed and and it's kind of coming around and she and she's faced away from camera and she's on the phone and she's talking discreetly and you're just you know the, the way they talk about in the documentary you know the the DP was like well shouldn't we come around and see his face and Polanski was like no 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 just let it just let it creep around and what happened was in the theater when that shot came up, everybody in the audience just went like this, just leaned over. Did you do the same shot with the daughter in the kitchen when you go around to her talking to Julie? A lo- yes, exactly. So That's those, what that felt like. Yeah, so that's the thing. When you can get the audience to physically want yeah. to lean in and, and know more about what's going on, uh, that's, to me, just really powerful. Because in that moment, you're convincing 300 people that they're not watching a movie. Exactly. They're not looking at an image that projected so on a screen. Immersed. They're in exactly. the room. Yeah. I think Polanski talked about this a little bit. Tarantino wrote about it. Tarantino wrote Tarantino about it once upon a time in yeah. Hollywood, or the book. Oh, I haven't yeah. read the book. Oh, yeah. he talks, does he talk about that shot? About the, the idea of sort of an audience moving yes. with, with that, which is great. Uh, I, I want to kind of piggyback on that. By no means do I want to take away the significance of shot choices, because you never create a shot just because it looks cool. There's always a reason there. Yeah. But I watched this film with my girlfriend and her best friend, and there was probably... 
two moments for each of us where we audibly out loud went, that's a cool fucking shot. <laughs> and we didn't, you know, we were in the movie, so we didn't sit there and, and sure. pick apart what it meant. But is there a shot in this film that even you watching, you know what it means, you know what it stands for, you know what it's trying to convey, but you just look at it and go, that's a cool fucking shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. It honestly might be that, that shot that's just static yeah. and everything's going on in that scene and the way it, from beginning to end. It's just brilliant. To, I, I just love when a shot can be simple. And I don't even know if that shot's distracting because the camera's not doing anything. But you still notice it. I, and and I, love, I love things like that. Because I'm looking around the frame. Exactly. I'm looking at them. Then I'm looking at the world. Yeah. It's a very and, interesting. And it, the fact that we're not doing anything necessarily as filmmakers except locking off a shot and still drawing you in to make you look around the frame. I just think I, there's something about that. The, the simplicity of that is is... is I, I really love. Can I answer that question for him? Please. My favorite shot in the film is like, I think you, we're looking at a wall of clocks and then you have like this brilliant dissolve from one of the yeah, clocks yeah. into the traffic circle yeah, yeah. and it matches literally. And I think there's a really famous one in Godfather part two when you go to the mustache. Yeah, it goes to the tree to his yeah, mustache. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. When, you, when you're designing a shot like that, like and when people see the movie, they'll know what we're talking about. But like you clearly set and align that shot with the clock to yeah. them. And then when you shoot the overhead of the traffic circle, are you already knowing that the clock has already been dissolved to Yeah, it? absolutely. I mean transitions are really important. Huge. And the, the the thing is like one of the one of the um kind of key words I used with my team was um that this film has to feel like it starts off as a dream and slowly turns into a nightmare. And when you start <laughs> when you start thinking about it in terms of like dream logic or nightmare logic, um, it's all about tone. And I, I sometimes forsake plot logic or any of that for that. Cause I do think that's ultimately the thing that you take away. You don't like, you know, for me, if an audience member is like thinking too much about like, what's, you know, how did that add up or you, then you've kind of failed. Like it really needs to get under their skin. And so when transitions are like the best way, because they kind of have this jump in space and time, but there's still a connectivity to everything. And that's how nightmares feel, you know, like you don't even know how you got from one place to the other. So like we design every transition with that in mind. That's cool. Damn. Yeah. Uh, I have a ridiculous question yeah. that I hope you don't hate because I really want to ask Julia Roberts too. <laughs> so if it crashes and burns here, I'm going to rethink my entire Julia Roberts interview. Uh, one of the great sort of uh, subplots in the film is that uh, the daughter is making her way through friends for the first time. Yeah. And her biggest frustration comes from the fact that she's on the last episode and because there's a blackout, she can't finish the show. Did she at any point when she got to season two, episode 12, <laughs> the episode that co-stars an actress named right. Julia Roberts, <laughs> do you think she looked at that episode and went, she looks just like my mom. <laughs> you know, I, I always, look, I think the film, the in the universe of the film, there is a Julia Roberts. Yep. Um, and, and then there's an Amanda Sanford, which is Rose's mom. Um, in our universe, there is no real Amanda Sanford. Um, there's, there's Julia Roberts playing Amanda Sanford. So in that world, I think Rose sees Julia Roberts on TV, who's not her mom, and says, oh, there's a... There's some resemblance. I don't know. And then she kept going. Is Amanda sick of hearing it by this point? Yeah, she's like, probably oh my God, like, yes, everyone, tells me. Yeah, exactly. everyone tells me I look just like her. <laughs> it's like me, you know, I always get stuff for George Clooney. It's, it's, I, like, I, you I, it's so <laughs> annoying. I'm going to be honest. I, I thought that's who we were speaking <laughs> yeah. to. And now I'm kind of over this interview. I mean, you know. Is this not Boys in the Boat? Are we not, <laughs> not Ticket to Paradise yeah. 2? What's going on here? Um, there's a great moment. It's early in the, in the, in the beginning. I think it's the, one of the Children of Men types of shots sure. where you go to the daughter 
daughter, and she talks about how she was like, she's like, Daddy, I, uh, can I? Can you take me to the Friends set sure, to go to the yeah. coffee, the coffee set? And he goes, I think that's not real. It's just you know, it's a, it's a, it's a set. Right. When you were younger, was there ever a movie or a scene you saw that oh, you thought was actually real, and you were like? I want to go there. Can I Can I say, I think I thought that about a lot of things. I wanted to go to Hill Valley, yes. you know, Back to the Future. Oh, I, yeah. um, you know, I wanted to go to the New York and got Ghostbusters, which is a little different than, than real New York. But I really like, you know, I really imagined everything I saw to be real locations, real places. Um, and I kind of still feel that way. I know, obviously, intellectually, I, I know that, that these are made up scenarios. But for me, there was just something... As a, there's a childlike thing about it where you just buy into the world. Going back to what you're saying, like you feel like you're in there. So, I, yeah, I, I I probably have countless examples where I always just believed it and I still, I think, to this day still do. What is, what is the coolest place you've yeah. been, the coolest movie location you've been to? The coolest, I, I, you know what I have to say, because I'm such a huge fan of, you know, the Woody Allen movie, Manhattan. Sure. Oh, God. And so I just went to the diner. You know that great scene at the end with Meryl Hemingway and, uh, you know, where he leaves her? Like, I, or she leaves him, actually. I I went to that diner. I just yeah. thought. That's cool. I thought you were just going to say, like, I've been to Manhattan. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, me too. That too. Yeah, I did the Katz's Deli thing. But one of my favorite locations I ever did was I went to the, uh, I sat at the table where De Niro and Pacino sat That's for cool. Heat. Oh, where is scene. that? It's, I think it's closed now. It's called, like, Kate Matterini's uh, or something. It was in L.A., but they closed it. But, like, I'm with you on that. And I love that I, moment. I, I told you, Kevin and I glamped together. Uh, overnight, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to get the name wrong. It's like Kahlua Kahlua, Ranch. Kahlua, 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 Kahlua Ranch. And it's where they shot Jurassic Park and Lost and Godzilla. Oh, wow. And so you just like walk I'm out. And so because jealous. they've used that location for so many places, every 30 seconds, you you are imagining yourself in a different moment in pop culture. And uh, I... I remember growing up always wanting to go to the diner in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't anymore. exist anymore. There's one so in LA pissed. that look, kind of looks like it when I drive yeah. I'm going off La Cienega. Every time I go by it, I'm like, maybe they put it back up. Someone the Reservoir Dogs a- Diner is still there. Is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Because a friend of ours went okay. there. We uh, need to get together and make a yeah. Jackrabbit. We need a Jackrabbit Let's do a Jackrabbit Slims. Slims. Let's yes. do a podcast at Jackrabbit Slims. Wait, wait. Didn't they actually buy out a place and make a Jackrabbit Slims? Into- yeah, I think so. Well, when I was a kid, I, I remember, I, I think I had like four or five different DVDs of Pulp Fiction. They released a special edition with the actual I menu. menu. I got that. You oh, can wow. physically what's crazy open is the within, like, with inflation, like 25 years later, a $5 <laughs> milkshake is not bad. <laughs> I not complain about a five dollar. Yeah. That's a little bit without now. bourbon. <laughs> There's a, obviously technology is a huge part of this yeah. film, and you and I discussed a little bit about the Tesla scene, which I think is a very disturbing, terrifying scene. Right. Just watching those cars crash. Yeah. Um, but it made me think about technology scares that people have in their own lives. Like, for example, I'll be in my kitchen. I'll mention cookie dough. And then five minutes later, it's an ad, ad cookie yeah. dough. What is your scariest run-in with technology? I know it might not be on the level of Julia Roberts in that scene, but, like, do you have something that, like, scared you like that that was something advanced? You know, I, I don't because I'm so paranoid mm-hmm. that uh, – and, and I think my wife gets annoyed about this because I, I, like, change our passwords every two months. Uh, you know, I use encryption messaging as opposed to real messaging. Like, I'm just so paranoid that I, knock on wood, have not had anything crazy happen. And I really, like, with that stuff, I that's why I kind of avoid social media apps like that mm-hmm. or I'll turn off the, the mic and – 
I'll do the Can little webcam. Can you turn the mic on your phone? Yeah, th- there's software that lets you do that. If you're not, if you're I just not turned using... off that. Um, what do you call it? Where the the two phones can bump and exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I turned turn that off. I need to email you about, yeah. the, about, yeah. your, about your tactics. Well, you know cause... what? There are sites out there that, g- if you want to be private here, and then give you like the ten things to do, and it's like a yeah, because it's it's pretty terrifying. I mean, you know, like when Apple got hacked with the whole fappening thing that happened years ago. Here's Apple, like the trillion dollar company, and if they can't keep you secure, <laughs> it's like. You know, we're we're in a world of pain. So yeah, uh, I want to talk about a, a line delivery, and it's in the beginning of the film, so I don't think it's spoiling too much. But Julia Roberts has a line delivery that might be one of my favorites <laughs> of her entire career. It's a fourth wall, break. and it's her just saying, "I fucking hate people." Yeah, and that feels like such an un Julia Roberts like thing to say. Yeah. I'm sort of curious what you remember about that day, and she, I'm an, I'd imagine. Her joy in saying that line. Oh yeah, she loved it, and we did a lot of takes um, because it, you know, it sets up, it sets up her character, it sets up the movie. So it was, it was a really important moment. But you know, it's funny as I remember when I read the book and 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 started envisioning who this person was. Um, I, I realized she was really thorny, you know, and she could, you know, in not in the wrong hands. This would be a disaster because nobody would want to be with this person for for the next two hours. Was Marshall called prickly? That's the line he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been all prickly. Yeah. yeah, and so I knew I needed someone like Julia Roberts, and it was fun to envision her saying that line because I think coming from her, right. it's a very different right. context it, than from it anyone It almost else. tells us as an art, like because I think collectively, I said I watched it with two other people. We all went like, "Oh wow!" I think yeah. it collectively says, "You know that Julia Roberts? You know that's not who you're getting exactly. in this movie." Which is which then when she starts saying some of the other things that she says, when she questions whether or not it's their house, you sure. sort of go like. Julia, what are you doing? Exactly. I can't, be- can't believe you would say these things. Yeah, and I love when films have that meta textual yeah. thing because I do think casting is an art. Sure. It's an art form on itself. On there should itself. be an Oscar category. There really, there really should. Yeah. I mean, Bacon I'm in a- this film. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Bacon is so good. That was a, what a brilliant lucky, moment. Man. Yeah. I got lucky with the entire cast, but Kevin Bacon is like one of my heroes. Of course, Cowboys fan. Of course. What's interesting about Bacon, there's one of my favorite shots in the film where in the car with Mahershala and I think his son at this point and out the window... Yeah. It's just Kevin with the gun. It's, it's so, it, and the whole time he's looming over that moment. And I'm wondering, is he going to pull the gun out and yeah. just go crazy? Yeah. That, that, this, this is the thing about him. I remember when I wrote that character, and obviously he was also in the book. I was worried that that character could just veer off too, too much like a character, like a doomsdayer type thing. And, uh, and then I, I kind of shared that concern with Kevin, and um, I said, "What do we do here? Because you know, I don't think what I have on the page is enough to make this guy three dimensional." And because he's such a, like an amazing, brilliant actor, he we talked about and we found out found a way that this guy's humanity is he wants to protect his family, just like GH and just like Clay. And once we kind of anchored it there, Kevin kind of just fleshed him out to be this real person that you're still scared of, yeah. and but you you understand why why he's doing what he's doing. Because you, you know? question like, would that be? That's what I love about this movie is that every aspect of it, you sort of go, listen, I've never been in that situation before. Who's to say I wouldn't be sure. that person? Yeah. You know, if it came down between a stranger coming at my house or me protecting my family, I'm also going to protect my family. And, and I you don't know what lengths you were going to go I to. I love when movies do that. I love when movies can align. You can start to align with, who you know, uh, whichever character, whoever ends up being the antagonist or protagonist. I remember, and I don't know if this, I think this was an Ebert review because I, I would read every single review, but in seven, at the end of seven, I'm going to spoil the ending of seven for those who haven't seen it. <laughs> but, um, but I just, he, he, I think he, I, there was a, there, there was something where he said, 
the, what's thrilling about the ending of that film is that you are rooting for the protagonist and the antagonist at the same time. Like you want him to kill him, but you don't want him because to kill him. Because then he wins. But then he wins. Like, and so that feeling of just being torn and seeing both sides is, is uh, to me, it, it's like what he said. It's like, it's thrilling. And I love that, like, in that scene where, that you were talking about where uh, Julia's character, Amanda, is questioning whether we should let G.H. and Ruth and A lot of people, I remember after screenings, a lot of people would be like, well, I understand. I mean, it's the middle of the night. Sure. How, do, how do I know? But then on the other side, a lot of people would sense the yeah. sort of ra racism and microaggressions there. So it, it's kind of a great yeah. place to put an audience where you're just sort of kind of torn and and nothing's as like black and white. That, that there's something gray about the whole thing. And I, I love that. I just think it's more complex and interesting. Yeah. I love little character details, like down to like Ethan's shirt, like with bikini kill on it. But <laughs> but with Ruth particularly, she the tattoos she has, I believe are the same tattoos she has in real life, the yeah. 96 particularly. Yeah. yeah. How, wait, how do you justify a character having the same tattoos as the actor? And like, like is that, a, like, how do you build those stories? Yeah. So I just, I remember Mahala, she, Mahala, so my, my wife actually directed her in an episode of Modern Love. And oh, I never. She's so good in this show. She's movie. excellent. Oh and she was excellent in, in, in uh, Emmy's, in, in Emmy's episode. And, um, and then I saw her in industry and I remember thinking, this is her. Whoever this is, this energy is what Ruth needs. It, it, it has that sort of Gen Z millennial brashness that she just, Mahala finds like the humanity out of that, where you can kind of understand her point of view. And so when I met her and talked to her about the movie and I, you know, I saw her with all her tats, I just, it just, it just made sense yeah. that that's Ruth. Um, and sometimes that just is like a happy accident where you just feel like the the line between who Mahala is and maybe the character are blurred. And you can kind of like see the, you know, see the person that you're looking for right there. So I just lucked out. It's cool. Uh, you know, one of the things I love most about this movie is that for every question we have answered, there are a lot of questions that are presented that we never really get any sort of definitive answer right. for, which has yielded amazing conversations for everyone who's seen it. I'm sort of curious, when you work with the author, to what degree do you have the right or do you need to have some of those questions answered? Do you do you get to go to him and say, listen, I know, I never, I know you never didn't put this in the book, right. but in order to pull off this script, I need to know X, Y, and Z. Right. So I'll I'll say this. I remember thinking, and this is this is tricky with any sort of mystery box type movie, right? Um, because you know that the audience wants to know all the answers by the time the movie ends. And I I I knew, and from reading the book and talking to Ramon about it, because um, he sort of, and I think he ends the book with a question mark, which I think is is telling, because I do think the movie should not pull punches about its ambiguity. And here's the reason why. I think life is full of ambiguity. And we and I know our intention was to reflect that. So if we had answered every question and tied everything up in a bow, it, that would have been felt very false. And for us, it was just about finding the right way to kind of explore this notion that um, – that it's the not knowing, it's the uncertainty, it's the life, it's life that scares us the most. And it's finding a way to channel that. That's yeah. cool. There's a really interesting theme in this film about we as a society don't know how to be bored anymore. We just don't <laughs> yeah. know how to be bored yeah. because everything we do, like, I think there's even a line like we were really bored back then. Yeah, yeah. 
And it really is an interesting thing because it, when we're bored, the first thing we do is either pick up our phone or we have something to do that's going to give us a dopamine reaction yeah. or whatever. And but back then, you had to actually sit in your thoughts and be bored. And I'm just wondering, as a filmmaker, as you tell stories like this, and we think about the fact of how far we've come with technology, but how it's limiting our creativity and our mindsets, I just found it to be a fascinating thing. I was just curious what that meant to you to include that and kind of the idea of, like, do you, you know, what are you trying to say about that as a well, filmmaker? Well, I think, I think ultimately, you know, technology, it, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. I think it's, you know, and I, I never view technology as good or bad. I think it's a tool like anything else. I think it's what we do with it, it's right? Like CGI. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, so when I think about how the positives, you know, it gives us access to information, to people, to media, to content that we want to explore. Like we were talking about earlier, I can see any classic I want basically um, at, at the, uh, you know, at, at a moment's notice. That's all great. But then what is it going to do with our reality? Right. Because right? that is still not reality. I mean, we that is, you know, that is cyberspace. That is that is like in the ether. And w- what are what are the consequences or the residual effects with the people that we have to, you know, that we have to live with and grow up with and love and hate and like all of those things sort of get abandoned and put by the wayside. And I do think that's ultimately kind of like the d- big dramatic question for society right now. It's part of the reason why Rose's arc is about how she does feel shut down with her family but she feels closer to these fictional characters on the show. And I think that's kind of happening more and more. And it may not be a TV show. It may be influencers or TikTokers or whatever. But people are developing more what they think are more meaningful relationships in this sort of false reality. And we almost I, care more about other people's reactions yeah. than our own family and yeah. closest exactly. friends, which yeah. is so... The comment exactly. section on the internet. How <laughs> often have our days been ruined because of a random stranger <laughs> yeah. who has an avatar for a profile picture saying that we right. were stupid about something. But then my mom will text me and say, Kevin, that was a great interview, and the only thing I can think about is, is that stranger negative who, comment that a person I've never yeah. met before. That's so freaking it's wild. wild. Yeah. It's wild. And what does it say about us that we care? You know, and that's right. the, I think that's the thing that we're going to have to kind of deal with and yeah. face. Uh, they're about to give us the wrap, so we'll cut you loose on okay. this. Um, I feel like, you know, you have such a great history of telling a story over multiple seasons and episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these days, a lot of books are getting sort of the the miniseries treatment to sort of be able to flesh out. Was there ever a point where you, as you were trying to crack this book and you were starting to craft the script where you thought, you know, if I had six episodes to do this, I could do X, Y, and Z? You know, for me, I'm, you know, being, having done television, you know, the art form of TV is in the episodes. Like, I really believe that. I don't, I've heard filmmakers and showrunners say, well, it's like a seven hour movie that we just cut up. I think if you look at TV that way, I think you're going to kind of fail because TV really is about the art form of each episode and that each episode sort of has its own point of view, its own tone. Um, And when I read this book and thought about what the movie was, it felt consistent to me. If I had done that, I think I would, like, just to add time, I don't think, I think I would have been betraying what's best about the TV model. It didn't feel rushed. And then having, I kind of did a quick, you know, run through of the book. And I didn't really feel like we, I mean, obviously there were some changes because daughter versus wife. But overall, I didn't feel like you lost anything. No, I mean, the book was so great in terms of these characters and how well drawn they were and, and the, the sort of, again, this fear of the unknown. I, I wanted to mine all of that. 
Sure. I'll end on this because we have one minute left. I, I, I want to get this thing because I think the music in this film is brilliant. Like you have needle drops that play perfectly, but they also weirdly work with the score. Yeah. <laughs> the score yeah. is very is the yeah. score is very 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 hot. Uh, almost a character in the film, I would yeah. argue. But you open the movie with the Joey Badass song essentially, and then you have songs that play throughout. But then this score is extremely eerie, and I'm just wondering when you're working with the composer. And you also have needle drops at the same time of actual soundtrack. Because some films are either soundtrack heavy or score heavy, right? I just wonder like, what that relationship is like to your score and your soundtrack. Well, so when I start writing, I start developing a playlist, right? Because I like to write with music in mind. And I share all of that with Mac, my composer, like as I'm writing. Um, and then once I finish the script... Um, you know, I do a, I do something very differently with the score because I and I used to do this where I think most filmmakers tend to temp right they they do a cut of the movie they use temp score or temp music and then they and then they show that to the composer. Whereas I think with Mac because we've worked well so for so long, I just said start writing music based off the script and I Damn. and because he knew my my playlist and I had some instrumental music in there, he started to get a vibe and a sense of what I'm looking for. And he started giving me music as I was shooting. And you know, like that shot that you were talking about where uh, it goes from the clock to like the, to the, so I had that piece of music and he didn't obviously score it for that shot because I was literally shooting it that day. And I just played it on set while we were doing the shot. And I was like, oh, oh the this overhead is shot? the overhead shot. And this, and I was like, that's the cue. And so I told Mac that. So it's almost like this kind of symbiotic thing that's happening where he's he's feeding off my script and my playlist and then his music is feeding off how I'm shooting yeah, it. It's kind of like and movie making is very much like a living breathing absolutely, thing. Absolutely, yeah. You always just kind of want everything to kind of happen in unison and almost as if it was live and spon spontaneous, you know? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Show, so you are the perfect guest for our yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, you have no idea. This I was a great this. conversation. So seriously, thank this you. Was great. We want to thank our friends at Netflix and, of course, Sam himself for coming on the show. I want to thank Jake and Kevin for handling that one. Uh, as you can tell, junkets are back. And so our schedules are filling up and we're doing some travel to head out to press events. Uh, and we're going to be able to review Leave the World Behind on the main show, because even though it's been in a few uh, select theaters, it's going to be coming to Netflix uh, the day that you're listening to the main show. Uh, and speaking of the main show, part of the reason why Sam has become a bonus episode is because the day that are, we are recording uh, or the day that the bonus episode is airing, we are going to be recording a potential if it happens uh, that could be really big. And if it does come together uh, on Wednesday, then that will be part of the main show on Friday. So cross your fingers, stay tuned, uh, hit subscribe, turn on your notifications, do all the cool things you're supposed to do here uh, so that you stay up to date with all the new Real Blend content. And uh, we're going to finish the year out strong with some really exciting interviews. Uh, we'll review Leave the World Behind on Friday and hopefully have a really exciting interview for you guys to enjoy on the main show as well. Um, until then, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for tuning into Real Blend. We appreciate all your support uh, and sharing of this show to movie fans like you guys around the world.